Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Jason, for those songs. They really do hit the hit the mark um, in what we're talking about this morning. Um, we're going to be in Titus 2, 11 through 15. And this is a part of a bigger series of lessons and conversations we've been having about the whole book of Titus. So I've been going through a section once per month through the entire year this year. Uh, and we're in Titus 2, 11 through 15 this morning, if you'll turn in your Bibles there. Um, I'm going to handle this a little bit differently than other lessons in Titus. So verses 11 through 14 particularly, you'll notice that the first word of verse 11, at least in the New American Standard, is for. Uh, it seems like this statement is both supporting the applications that have come already in Titus, but also leading into the applications which will continue in Titus in chapter 3. Uh, so some of the more specific things that are talked about here, like defining words like to live sensible, righteous, godly, um, some of those things I think we've already talked about and will talk about in Titus. So how I'm going to handle this differently is I'm going to be using this, this section as a framework for using other examples and illustrations to fill in some of the concepts here. Um, and if that didn't make sense, it will make sense, hopefully, uh, through the lesson. Um, and if you were here last week, this lesson will also help balance what we talked about last week. So last week we talked about uh, the wisdom of neglect uh, with Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, where Martha was distracted with much serving, became frustrated, told Jesus to order her sister to help her while she was sitting at the Lord's feet, not helping Martha with her serving. You remember Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried, that, worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. And we talked about how uh, spiritual priorities and spiritual values oftentimes just don't feel as urgent as worldly things, worldly values, worldly priorities, and sometimes what it means to be busy and zealous for the Lord um, may look very different than what we think from a worldly perspective, and that, that requires a lot of corrective thinking and humility and thinking through that. Uh, those points will help us balance the points from this lesson, because if you look at the end of verse 14, the grace of God ultimately is to make us zealous for good deeds. So we are going to talk about how the grace of God should make us hard, exhaustive workers for the kingdom. Um, but again, I want to reference last week's lesson that I think those principles equip us to see that with a clearer lens, uh, hopefully. One last thing by introduction is this is the most intimidating section of Titus to teach on for me. Um, when we're talking about the grace of God and focusing on the impact that should have on us. Um, I don't think it's adequate to uh, define it as you would in a dictionary. Um, what illustration can possibly even summarize it? Um, and there's certainly nothing I can say that is beautiful enough or eloquent enough or powerful enough uh, to convey it. So I hope that the way that I work through this, at least it equips you to think more about it. Um, because these concepts are so enormous that I, d I just don't feel like I, I can adequately convey it. Um, so again, my goal in this lesson is to look at illustrations that help convey the principles, and that will hopefully equip you to appreciate these things more and explore them more um, just in your own thinking. 
So we're going to reread this, and we're going to start with this idea of how does grace instruct us? Um, I don't know if you've thought about that before, but I found that to be a very unusual kind of idea. Um, it's a phrase that is really only used in Titus, particularly here. Grace is obviously saturating the Bible uh, from beginning to end, and especially the New Testament, which talks very specifically about grace. But this idea that the grace of God instructs us is something unique here to Titus. So uh, after reading this again, we'll kind of start with unpacking this idea. So Titus 2, 11 through uh, 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So again, the, the thrust of what's said here really hinges on the grace of God. And I think there's a couple things you could think about related to this idea that maybe help to be more specific or tangible. You know, with this idea of the grace of God appearing, obviously, how did that appear? Jesus came. Jesus appeared. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I think you could also think about it's God's unfathomable goodness. It's his unsearchable riches. Uh, it's his unfathomable love that's been poured out on us in ways that are difficult to even imagine. So again, it's, it's this idea of his unwarranted love, the, the lengths of his love, how he uses his resources toward us, how good he is towards us continuously both in what's been established and proven through the past, what God is doing for us presently. And then obviously you have verse uh, verse 14. We're to be looking forward, or rather verse 13, we're to be looking forward to the grace that's still coming when Jesus appears. And the idea is, is grace should be the focus of our lives, the foundation of our lives. Uh, we should be a people who are focused on grace, who, who think constantly about the grace of God, who are motivated by the grace of God. So, how does the grace of God instruct us? This is where we're going to be going to other passages, and Titus 2, 11 through 15, will be a platform to unpack as we kind of try to illustrate it in, a different, in some different ways. But I want to argue that the grace of God inherently instructs us by nature of what it is. Uh, and I do think it's, it's really rewarding to think about this idea. It's extremely helpful. It's been helpful for me. Uh, maybe for you, the idea the grace of God instructs us, maybe that's super straightforward, uh, but this is something that for a long time really confused me. You know, how does the grace of God instruct me? I want to bring some illustrations up. And if you'll turn in your Bibles here, we're not going to have time to like detail what's going on in these different passages. Um, and I'll, I meant to say this ahead of time as well. This is going to be a lot. Um, and I've kind of determined that's okay. Uh, these are going to be a lot of illustrations. I, I, I do mean for it to be that way. If it's overwhelming, I'll just say this ahead of time. That's okay. That's kind of the intention. But Matthew 18, I'll do my best to kind of point out what's happening here. In Matthew 18, in the section here at the end of Matthew 18, Jesus tells a famous parable where Peter had asked a question about how often he should be forgiving his brethren. And Jesus tells a parable about a man who was a servant to a master. And this man was in debt by 10,000 talents. And that would mean, in our modern currency, about $3.5 billion. Uh, it's about 200,000 working days of work. 
which I had written in a different Bible, is almost 3,000 lifetimes of work. So obviously it's just this absolute impossibility that he'll ever pay this off. Pleads with his master to have compassion. When his master holds him accountable, orders him to be sold to him and his family. Um, but his master, when he begs for mercy, has compassion on him and forgives him the debt in verse 27. Just forgives him entirely of it all. Well, in verse 28, so the, ma- the slave finds a fellow servant who owes to him 100 denarii. Slave in verse 29 falls down to the ground, pleads him, pleads to him for mercy, says exactly the same thing he had previously said to his master. But verse 30, he was unwilling to forgive him, threw him into prison so that he should pay back what was owed. Well, in verse 31, the other servants heard of this. It grieved them very much. They reported this to their master. And in verse 31, or verse 32, Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Verse 33, here's the thrust of it. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? He was handed over to the torturers. And then verse 35, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. All right. Was the slave here ever told... At the point of forgiveness, when he was forgiven the debt, did his master tell him like, okay, so now that you've been forgiven, make sure that anyone else you're indebted to pay it forward, right? Because now you're under a new law. There's, there's an expectation now. That was never said. There was never any communicated expectation. So how can his master hold him accountable <laughs> to having held his fellow servants accountable to this debt, which, you know, in another context, holding someone accountable to, you know, Although it wasn't 10,000 talents, 100 denarii is a fairly substantial amount of money. So how can he be so outraged when he didn't outright tell him you need to pay it forward? As a reader, we understand that the context of the grace that he had been granted became its own reasonable expectation. What I have on the board here, there is a point when grace becomes its own law. Grace instructed this servant here to pay it forward. He did not need to be told outright, hey, make sure you do what I did to you. It's implied by nature of what was done for him. The grace given naturally, inherently instructed him. As a reader, we should be just as outraged as the master when he finds out what had happened. And Jesus says the same thing for us. The grace we're given, it is extremely reasonable that God has an implied expectation that you pay it forward. When we struggle with mercy, and forgiveness. We do not understand the grace of God in its most fundamental level, right? At a point, grace becomes its own law, and we are extremely blessed that God does instruct us to keep us within his grace and to keep us aware of ways that we can violate the terms of his grace, right? If we understand the nature of what God is telling us to do in the new covenant and the instructions he gives us, it makes us very thankful because we do not want to do what the servant did and betray the grace he had just been given. Grace becomes its own law at a point. Matthew 20, verses 6 and 7, Jesus tells another parable on the subject of grace. A landowner, he sends out people to hunt, he sends out servants uh, to go hire people in as laborers. Um, rather, the landowner himself, in verse 1, goes out to hire people to work in his vineyard. 
keeps going out at different times of the day to hire people into the vineyard. And in verse 6, finally at the 11th hour, workday's almost over. The 11th hour, he finds people just standing around. And he says, why have you been standing here idle all day? They say, well, no one hired us. So he says, hey, go into the work. They go, they work, and at the end of the parable, they're paid an equal amount to the people who had labored all day. And again, this turns out to be a lesson on grace. The point I have on the board here, there's a time when grace is being given, being given a job to do. You know, did these people standing idle deserve that job? Had they earned it somehow? Did they ask for the job? They did nothing to deserve it. The landowner did all the work. He had prepared the vineyard. He owned the property. He's the one who went out and offered them a job. And by the way, when he found out that they've been idle all day, couldn't he have said, mm, you seem lazy. <laughs> you don't seem like a people who take much initiative. Uh, no thanks. You know, and I don't have much work to do anyway, so it just it seems unreasonable to hire you now, maybe another day. He hires them. Everything that happens here is a grace. Is there a point when being given a job to do is itself a grace? I've seen people, I've known people who are desperate for work. I've known people who are desperate for work and when they got a job, especially if it was a reasonably paying job that could sustain them, the amount of gratitude they had was incredible. And the fact that this person in this parable, think about this. The fact that they were given a job to do which now came with work, responsibility, expectations. Did that devalue the grace they were being given? Or did that heighten and exalt the grace they were given? Think about it in the last parable of Matthew 18. The fact that he was expected to show just a smidgen of the mercy he had been given, that expectation, did that diminish the grace he had been given, or does that exalt the grace he had been given, right? When someone's desperate and they're given a job and they understand they don't deserve it, does that impact their attitude about their work? When someone is desperate, and I mean really desperate, and they're given a job they understand they did not deserve, does that impact their work ethic, how hard they work, even in comparison to everybody else in the workplace? Folks, I've seen it where that person I'm thinking of works harder and has a better attitude than anybody else and especially people who are taking for granted the fact that just having a job is a blessing to be respected and to be thankful for. John chapter 5. And I spent too long on that. I've been meaning to go through these uh, fairly briefly. John chapter 5. Jesus goes to a pool of water in Jerusalem that is a miraculous place. An angel of the Lord stirs it up, and whoever gets in first, they're healed of their affliction. Verse 5, there's a guy who's been ill there 38 years. And the implication is, this is an illness of paralysis. He would have been lame. Uh, Jesus asks a great question, do you want to be well? And he says, you know, sir, every time the pool is stirred, someone else gets in first, and he's just never able to get in. Kind of implies nobody cares about this guy. He has no friends. He's just all by himself. Well, verse 8, Jesus tells him, get up, pick up your pallet, walk. Verse 9, he immediately does that, and he's well, picks up his pallet and walks. But the point I want to get to is verse 14. Jesus finds him in the temple. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, because you have become well, or behold, you have become well, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse, worse happens to you. 
There is a condition grace provides that demands an entirely new way of being. For Jesus to affirm to this man, you have become well. It's a little strange. Don't you think he knows he's well now? But I think the idea is, don't be like you were before. Don't think like a sick person anymore. You're not lame anymore. You're not crippled anymore. You are well, so be well. And then the next thing Jesus says, which is an extraordinarily solemn warning, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Is that reasonable for Jesus to say that? And for Jesus to give this man this warning, does that does that diminish the grace that was given to this man? Or does that protect and even exalt the grace that was given to this man, giving him that warning? We ought to be very thankful that we're given warnings like we've seen in Hebrew. He who goes on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Like John said, that's not just supposed to terrify us to make us withdraw from God. We're to be very thankful for warnings like that. You know, we don't want to mess up the grace that's been given. We want to honor the grace we've been given. We want to stay plugged into the grace we've been given, right? For Jesus to give this warning is not diminishing the grace that was given him. Giving this expectation was not unreasonable. The grace of what was done for him should inherently instruct him to live as a well person and to use what Jesus had done, not for self, self-serving self purposes, but I mean, look where he found him in verse 14. He found him in the temple, perfect. The man had already been there seemingly implying he was worshiping God. Anyway, there's a condition grace provides that demands, it inherently demands. There's no need for a series of instructions. The fact that you're made well, the blood of Jesus has cleansed our conscience. Why? from dead works to serve the living God. We've been redeemed, and inherently, that implies something. You've been redeemed from dead works to now serve the living God. Thank God that he tells us how to do that, that he instructs us with ways of how to be busy with that, how to fill our lives with that. Thank God. A couple more uh, personal illustrations. Maybe fill this out a little bit more. There's a brother I know in Mississippi. He was a long-term drug addict, and for a long time after his salvation, uh, he hid his drug addiction. He was addicted to methamphetamine, uh, hard drugs. He would lie to brethren. Uh, there was an evangelist I knew, an old evangelist. He was stealing from this evangelist. This evangelist would try to help him, and he was using that help to go buy more drugs. Eventually, he became very laden with guilt and confessed that he was on hard drugs still, that he was stealing from the brethren and lying to the brethren. Well... The brethren paid for this man to go to long-term drug rehabilitation. And he took that. He went to long-term drug rehabilitation. I visited Mississippi, uh, coincidentally, to visit some friends of mine when he was graduating from this long-term rehabilitation. It was very encouraging. Well, after he got out, the brethren paid for a vehicle, got him a car. They got him a job. They paid for his housing. They paid for his rehabilitation. They visited him while he was there. They gave him a car. They gave him housing. They helped him find a job. What's the point of all that? What does that grace inherently teach that man? Continue on with his drug addiction like it's no big deal? (laughs) Get right back head first to the thing that landed you at rock bottom in the first place? That grace inherently demands something. What a shame if he would have gone right back 
to hiding his drug addiction. And by the way, this brother is doing very well. And I have to use an illustration of a brother in another state because I've known brethren myself who I've invested in where that wasn't the case, where they were extended an incredible degree of grace, where people aren't commanding them, hey, make sure you respect what I'm doing for you, and they still they still betray the grace that was given to him. There's a risk in grace. Giving grace like God gives grace is risky. It's emotionally taxing. It's sacrificial. It makes you invest deep in people and they can hurt you. But that's just the nature of it all, isn't it? God takes an incredible risk in the grace he, gi- he gives us. But what God is depending on is that we think enough about it, we're humbled enough by it, and that we're thankful enough to realize that his grace, this immeasurable goodness given to us, has a purpose driving it all. And that purpose is that we deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age and be zealous for good deeds. Something personal here. And this gets to this idea that all of these things, there should have been a denial. The parable of the 10,000 talent man, he needed to deny that he should be owed 100 denarii. He had just been forgiven 10,000 talents. Deny your need for justice. Let it go. The person who was given a job, they had to deny being lazy now. They had to get to work. They needed to do something. The person who had been crippled, he needed to deny sinful desire now. You know, sitting down and acting like he was still crippled. He needed to live as a whole and healthy person now. The brother in Mississippi was going to have to struggle to continue to deny drug addiction. Although you imagine the temptation for that would be very, very strong. One more just very personal example. One of the hardest things I've had to deal with as far as sin was in my past, I was deeply addicted and enslaved to pornography. And what helped me through that addiction to not just stay in it, but to escape it, was not just that I knew it was sinful because I certainly knew that and felt horribly guilty every time I would watch pornography. What helped me was understanding better and better the grace of God and understanding more and more the riches of the love that God deeply invests in me, his willingness to forgive me and work with me after so much sin and failure. And the more I dug deep into the grace of God, the more my passion to give in to sinful lust was diminished by the knowledge of I'm spitting in God's face and destroying everything he's trying to do for me. I'm slapping his hand away and right in front of his face, I'm watching pornography. How could I do such a thing to a God who is so good to me? What helped me work through and deny that sinful temptation was not just the guilt of knowing that what I was doing was wrong, which was obvious, not that God was disappointed, not that God was going to be punished me for it, which are all true things, but that God loves me. And the more I meditated on that and invested into that and invested in the brethren, which helped me to understand that, the more God's grace motivated me to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Uh, The grace of God inherently instructs us. I want to think about this with Paul's example. Uh, I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because again, we could just say grace is unmerited favor. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. I do think there's a place for that. But the grace of God is so rich, I just don't think that's very meaningful most of the time. You know, what God's grace looks like requires example. The grace of God appeared. Jesus didn't just come into the world and say, okay, God's grace means receiving what you don't deserve. Got it? All right. 
No, he lived it out. He embodied the fullness of the grace of God. When we see examples like Paul, we are seeing grace defined in a way much richer and accurate than just what one sentence can convey. 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 10. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet, not I, but the grace of God in me. Paul's life demonstrates the reality of the transforming power of God's grace. It demonstrates the reality. And I think it can be easy to misunderstand Paul's example. I'll just, I know this is going to sound abrasive. I don't mean this in a super judgy way, but it bothers me when people talk about Paul like, Paul was a zealous all-in Jew. He was a zealous all-in Christian. You know, he's just a zealous guy. You know, as if being zealous and all-in, just part of who he was, whether that's a Christian, whether that's a Jew, he's just zealous. I think that's such a misrepresentation of how Paul talks about himself and how we're to see Paul. Paul was merciless. Paul was ruthless. He was selfish and arrogant and competitive. He was unreachable. Paul knew the gospel. I think there's a likelihood Paul heard Jesus with his own ears. I think there's a strong possibility Paul was there when Jesus was on trial and condemned. Paul heard sermons by Christians. He was responsible for the death of Christians. Paul was unreachable. And the reason why Paul was a zealous all-in Christian was not because he was an all-in Jew. It was because he understood grace. And he understood grace in a way that you can understand grace and in a way that I can understand grace. If we think about Paul as well, his gift as a person was just being zealous. We have missed it catastrophically. We've missed the lesson. We missed the point. The reason why Paul says what he says in verse 10 is not because he's trying to hint like, aren't I special? You know, the other apostles, they labored, but man, I've outdone every one of them. What he's trying to convey is, this is what God's grace can do. I was the least of the apostles, not even worthy to be an apostle, but by God's grace, I was motivated and I worked hard, not because Paul pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and was just a naturally hardworking guy, the grace of God at work in him, the same grace to him as there can be for me, as there is for me. All right, verse eight. Again, Jesus embodies the power and the personal nature of grace. Jesus appeared. You know, Paul took it personally. When Jesus appeared to to Paul, do you remember what he said when he was Saul? It was the first thing Jesus said to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's foundation was that this is personal. This isn't just Saul being one among many. This is why are you persecuting me? You know something conveyed with him becoming blind for three days before he became a Christian, was baptized? Is he's thinking about what he has done and those words that were spoken to him and what that meant in the personal relationship he had between him and this Jesus he had been persecuting. There are no exceptions. You know, again, verse 8 and 9. Paul's the least of all the apostles. Paul's unworthy to be called an apostle. 
What Jesus coming and what his resurrection proves, there's no exception. You are not an exception to the grace of God, if Paul was not an exception to the grace of God. You are not an exception to the power of God, if Paul was not an exception to the power of God. Jesus raising from the death that he died proves there is no condition too far away from God that he cannot restore it. There's no one too sinful that their life is too overthrown with sin, not drowning too deeply in sin. Nobody's off limits. There are no exceptions. That's what we learned through the Apostle Paul. If you're not thinking personally about the grace of God, you don't understand the grace of God. If you are not thinking personally about the grace of God, you don't understand the grace of God. If you're not thinking about how far the grace of God is meant to take you, you know, the the lengths yet to go, you don't understand the grace of God. If you're not willing to sacrifice and hurt in your service to God, you don't understand the grace of God. I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Paul is an example of the power and the personal nature of God's grace. When we're struggling in our relationship with God or in our life, the answer is we don't just need to do better and think better. We need to dig deeper into Jesus and his example. Jesus puts everything in perspective. What all had Paul been through? You know, did Paul get so discouraged he gave up? Did Paul become so frustrated with a group of Christians that he just fooied them and could no longer work with them? The idea is this. If I need to be convicted, it's Jesus' example that can convict me. If I need to be comforted, it's Jesus' example that can comfort me. If I need to be strengthened, it's Jesus that strengthens me. If I need to be more motivated, if there needs to be some change in my life, it's Jesus and his example that motivates me, helps me, moves me. The answer to it all is not, again, that I just need to do better. It's the grace of God. We need to comprehend more fully the grace that inherently instructs us. Satan does not want us to see Jesus personally. He does not want us to see God's grace accurately. He does not want us to be focused on grace, motivated by grace. He wants you to be focused on you, your weakness, your failure, your inadequacy, and he does not want you to see any of those things in relation to the overwhelming grace that supplies for every need. When we see how bold Jesus was, will that change us? When we meditate on how focused Jesus was, will that change us? When we meditate on how much Jesus suffered for us, will that change us? When we focus on what the resurrection means for me and implies about me, will that change us? Secondly, grace equips me to embrace and be strengthened by my unworthiness before God. This is again verse 9. Not worthy to be called an apostle. Paul makes other statements like this. It said in Ephesians 3.8, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which I was given according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. And I don't think Paul's trying to make like just nice statements, you know, that sound really good. You know, I have every confidence that when Paul says something about himself, he means it entirely, that he really believed he was the very least of all the saints. First Timothy 1.5, or 1.15 rather, he says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
among whom I am foremost of all. Grace equipped Paul to see himself in a way he had never seen himself before. He had never seen himself like this as a Jew. He was trying to be the best Jew he could possibly be. And in no way was that a spiritual kind of pursuit. Otherwise, he would have long beforehand obeyed the gospel. Paul was a competitive person, an arrogant and selfish person trying to rise the ranks of his culture. When Jesus appeared to him, he fully understood how deeply and incredibly unworthy he was to have any place at all in this kingdom. To feel unworthy in view of God's grace does not discourage us. It does not demotivate us. It doesn't make us feel like we need to be more distant from God because we're just not worthy to be in his presence. No, when we see grace in view of our unworthiness, when we view our unworthiness in view of his grace, it strengthens us. You know, something I strive to do, and I strive to do this because I've heard older brethren do this and I see the fruit of it. I try to pursue my unworthiness. Again, you've, you've heard me say this if you've been here for a while. Times I've heard older brethren who I look up to greatly say that they say in their prayers every day, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Grace equips us to embrace our unworthiness, not to be put off by it. But if we don't understand our unworthiness, we don't understand grace. If we're not motivated by our unworthiness, we don't understand grace. If our unworthiness does not put us in awe of God, if it doesn't humble us to the point where we just want to serve God with everything we have, everything we are, the problem is we don't understand the grace of God. It's the grace of God that puts into perspective how deeply unworthy we are. Remember that Jesus himself said, he who is forgiven much loves much. We are not to neglect how sinful we've been, the cost of our sin, the magnitude of our sin. The grace of God encourages us, rather, embrace it, pursue it, and be strengthened by it. Finally, grace fuels and protects both the zeal and labor in the Lord that are otherwise impossible. Verse 10, his grace did not prove vain toward Paul. He labored more than all of the other apostles. And I want you to think, those guys who spent time with Jesus for over three years, heard every sermon, were corrected by him incessantly over that three and a half years. How much zeal do you think they had? How hard do you imagine someone like the apostle Peter was working? You know, and I don't imagine the other apostles any less than Peter, although we don't have accounts of their labors. You know, and again, I don't think Paul is saying either in arrogance or in ignorance that he labored more than them all. The idea is Paul understood grace better, not because he was just a better person or more intellectual. It's because he wasn't worthy to be even called an apostle. And understanding this grace made him consider his unworthiness. Understanding that personally, tangibly, motivated a labor, a zeal and labor in the Lord that would otherwise be impossible. The point of what he's saying in verse 10 is this would not be possible except grace. The more we understand grace, the harder we will work. The nature of that work, turn to 2 Corinthians 12, 14 and 15. There's a particular statement here that I think encapsulates everything Jesus is, everything he did, purpose of his life. Personally, 
It's one of my favorite statements ever made in the entire Bible. This has helped me. It has challenged me. It has motivated me. 2 Corinthians 12, 14 and 15. The Corinthians, they are a task. There's a lot of encouraging things said in this letter, but these Christians are a task. They have been taxing the Apostle Paul. They have been a hard group to work with. And here's what he says. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you the more, am I to be loved less? And I love the beginning of verse 16 in the New American Standard. I think this gets the idea, but be that as it may. The idea of if that's how it is, that's how it is. Verse six, verse 15. Paul would most gladly, for the Corinthians, who have been nothing but taxing for him, he's been doing nothing but giving. They're on the brink of betraying him entirely. It seems like the group would rather follow false teachers who are slandering Paul to them and talking bad about Paul to them. And the relationship is on the brink of being severed when this letter is written, despite everything that Paul has exhaustively put into them. And yet he says in verse 15, and there is a Greek word that is accurately translated here for emphasis, not just I'll gladly, I will most Gladly. There is a deliberate emphasis in the language. This is an exuberance. Paul will most gladly spend his resources, whatever it takes for their souls. But notice the second part. Be expended. Paul will be the resource. He'll spend his emotions. He'll spend his time. He'll spend his mental capacity. Paul will exhaust himself for the Corinthians, whatever it takes. I know this might sound strange, but this has really helped me to consider that if somebody can apply that attitude genuinely, again, this might sound strange, they become invincible spiritually. You know, how could Paul be so zealous and never get burnt out? How could he work with such discouraging kinds of groups of people like the Corinthians? and not get lost in frustration and bitterness? How could he be persecuted so much and not just hate people and withdraw and say, you know what, I'm going to just take a break for a while. This is too much for me to take. Because Paul understood grace. This is what it looks like for grace to be real. Listen. When we are not willing to both spend and be spent, For the sake of the brethren we're working with locally, we do not understand the grace of God. When we're too frustrated, too disappointed, whatever, we don't understand the grace of God. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. He's struggled with these things, but it's always by reflection on the grace of God that he is renewed, he is strengthened, and he is made stronger and more zealous in the Lord. If you are not willing to both spend and be spent for the sake of brethren, even brethren who frustrate you, even brethren who disappoint you, even brethren who seem to give nothing back, don't understand the grace of God. This is what it looks like to both spend and be expended for those whom you love more, and even if they love you to less, 
be that as it may. 1 Corinthians 15. This will be our last scripture. We're to be zealous for good deeds, and this is impossibly sustained by grace. But this is as we are looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul really ends chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians dealing with this same point. That there's going to come a time where death is swallowed up in victory, where the sting of death is passed, where we are victorious. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the climactic point here. Verse chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. How should the promise of Jesus' coming and the resurrection inherently motivate you? Does the promise of Jesus' coming motivate you every day? Is that the platform for your service to God? Do you think about that? Are you anticipating that? Does that matter to you? Again, what Paul is saying both in Titus and in Hebrews and any other place, or Titus, Hebrews, and 1 Corinthians, I'm thinking of the passage we talked about in Hebrews, the coming of Jesus, again, is not just a passive comfort. It's not just a nice thing that will happen sometime. The way that the second coming of Jesus is talked about scripturally is as something that should continuously be motivating us to grow in our service, to find comfort when things are hard, to renew us when we're on the brink of giving up, to remind us that things are temporary here, and to put back into perspective what really matters. And that has an impact that should make us steadfast, immovable, always, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. I've taken long enough to dwell on these things. I hope, again, that the choice of how we've gone through these things has just touched a thread of just how impactful the grace of God is. We'll go back, we'll read Titus chapter 2 to finish the lesson, 11 through 14. I'll say a prayer on these things, then we'll stand and sing our invitation song. If you'll turn with me back to Titus 2, and we'll reread 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray.